Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Continuing in our journey through the book of Ephesians, we'll start reading in verse 1 just so we can get some context, but we will spend this morning in verses 3 through 6. This is what Paul says, starting in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Here's our text. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Coarse and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this. Every sexual, immoral, or impure, or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. This is God's word. Let's pray. Wow. Lord, the Israelites said to Moses, they begged Moses to speak, to be a mediator between them and God, saying, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us, for if God speaks to us, we will die. Lord, that your word, your very words are so heavy with glory, so weighty in holiness, and so perfect that a sinner could not even stand in the presence of you speaking. The fact that we now get to listen to the very word of God written down as a miracle and an act of your mercy and grace. So I pray, Lord, with that, the Holy Spirit, you would operate in our church today. That you would open our eyes to see the grandeur of God's glory, his holiness, his beauty. That we would also see our lowliness, our rebellion, our sin, our brokenness. And in that, we would see the two of them being put together, our tremendous need for a Savior and a mediator better than Moses to step in the gap. Thank you that we have that in Jesus Christ. Show us our need and show us our salvation that we might be able to say with the psalmist, why are you so downcast, my soul? Hope in God, my salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you are our salvation. And it's in you that we trust and hope and glory and thank forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been spending a, a significant part of Ephesians in some really heartwarming parts of Ephesians. You know, we're talking about God's grace. We're talking about the love of God. And we're talking about God as Father. And those things are really easy to love, right? Now we get to the part where some of you are like, okay, here come the rules. 
One, don't do this. Two, don't do that. Three, don't do this. Do this instead, but don't do that. Here's the rules. I guess every religion has to have some form of rules, right? I'd prefer, and I think from the way Paul speaks about these, this list of vices that he rolls out, I think it'll help us to move through them, knowing the heart of God a little better, to think of it in different terms. I have a couple friends who recently bought, uh, just to give an example, who recently bought uh, their first home. And for those of you that have bought your first home, you know just the, the joy and the stress involved in something like that. Joy, because maybe for some of you that, that have gotten your first home, it's like, it's one of the first real things that you've bought, right? It's the, the first real thing that belongs to you. Sure, maybe you bought your own car and it's worth like, half as much as when you, you first bought it or nothing at all. Or maybe you bought a pair of shoes or you bought something, but you never really bought something that, that, that has this much investment involved in it, this much value. And now it's causing you to dream about the future. I, I get to, uh, we get to build a family together and we get to use this room for that thing and it's gonna, it's gonna hopefully uh, appreciate in value. And so for, for people who, who have purchased their first home, there's this sense of, of joy and excitement over something like that. But for my particular friends, it was a fixer-upper. So there was a tension involved because they, they experienced this joy in, in having their first home and, and owning their first home and piece of property, but also there was this tension in the fact that the person who lived in it before didn't do quite a good job of keeping it uh, kept. There was a, a particular room, my, my friend tells me, there was a, a room in which they, they kept all their, their cats, and so the, the carpets were slightly soiled. There were fleas all over the house. The carpets were just disgusting. The, the walls had to be painted over. Everything was just torn apart, and yet it belonged to them. It was their first home. It is their first home. But with that responsibility comes a need to take out the old furniture and bring in some new stuff. And this is more or less what Paul is saying to the Christian. He isn't saying you need to get a new house. He's saying a new house has been given to the believer. All the resources of heaven have been given to the believer. All you need to do is get rid of that old stuff that you used to have before you knew Jesus. And he lists a few vices, a, a, a few particular forms of depravity. These particular vices should be far from the behavior of all Christians. And they seem, when he goes into them, they seem a little bit arbitrary, a little random, but there's a common theme going through them. Let's just look at a few of them. The first thing he says is in verse 3, sexual immorality should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. Sexual immorality is the act of sex outside of marriage as God designed it. In general terms, that's what it is. Now, some of you, maybe, upon hearing that, are like, oh, great, I've never done that yet, or I don't do that anymore. I do everything but that, so according to Paul, I'm golden. You know, me and the person that I love, you know, we, we have done everything except for that particular thing. We, we kind of stopped right before that red line. So I guess that's what Paul means. We can get, we, uh, he's, he's setting this boundary and we can do as much as we want until we get to that point. Well, then he throws in this word impurity. 
This is what Paul means when he says impurity. He means generally any sexually deviant behavior. So this is what Paul is doing. He's saying for the Christian, it is not fitting for someone who claims to be a child of God and a believer in Christ to partake in anything sexual outside of the God-ordained form of marriage between a man and a woman. Not just the blatant act, but anything else. Anything else that entertains our sexuality, if it is outside of God's design for it, it is wrong. Then he says, sexual immorality and impurity, in verse 3, or greed should not even be heard among you as is proper for the saints. Now it starts to, it's, it seems like he's just going on a, on a dirt trail, like a, on a random dirt trail. Okay, I understand this common theme of, of sexuality, but greed? Well, what is greed when you, when you look closely at it? Greed is nothing more than having an insatiable desire for something other than God. Greed is an insatiable desire for having something more. It is, it's a lack of contentment. And greed is, obviously we think of greed in terms of money more often than not, and that it is. You want so much money. You have a certain allotment of it, but you are so driven to have more. Maybe you make $60,000 a year, but oh man, if you could have $70,000 a year, you would be happy. If you could just move into this tax bracket, everything would be fine. If you could just have this dream job instead of that job which you now occupy, everything would be golden. It's an insatiable desire for more. It's a lack of contentment. And it affects not just money, but our status. It doesn't just affect uh, our status, but our longing for power, our social circles, and yes, even sexuality. In other words, what Paul is saying right now, he's not just picking on arbitrary sins, but Paul is using typical characteristics that used to mark the lifestyle of someone who didn't believe in Jesus Christ. He's starting with those things that are outward manifestations of sin, right? Sexuality. And he's moving to the inward manifestations, those things that nobody knows except us. Greed. In other words, Paul is covering the entire spectrum of a person's fallen nature. And he's saying, that used to be your old furniture. And God has saved you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that you can stand before God positionally, knowing that even though you have messed up in this life, God looks at you like he looks at his son, well pleased but you've still got some baggage, perhaps. And now begins the task of moving out the old furniture and moving in the new furniture. And he's covering the entire spectrum of human sin, even the way that we talk. Look at what he says in verse 4. Coarse and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. Coarse, foolish, and crude. Now, Paul is speaking on such a broad level that he could be speaking about anything from uh, bad jokes to uh, ill-advised humor to uh, laughing or joking uh, or uh, uh, conversing about things that you used to do, glorifying sin in any way, shape, or form. 
In other words, all three terms refer to a broken, messed up mind expressing itself in broken, messed up conversation. Paul would say in another letter in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show him gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense. Their senseless minds were darkened. So in these first two verses, Paul is doing something very simple. He's saying Christians, by virtue of their new nature, must take out all the old furniture that, they used, to, that used to mark their lives. And here's the, the sine qua non of the old life, sexuality to greed. That isn't all it is. He's just saying all of that old furniture, it's got to go. It doesn't mark your life anymore. You have a new life. Your life has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you that lives, but Christ lives in you. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. So you're not just signing up for something that you can just tap into whenever it's convenient or whenever you need some help from God who's hiding in heaven. This is a new way of life. It's a better way of life, but it is a new way of life. Now, perhaps some of you at this point are asking yourself, okay, I understand new way of life. I understand God changing our old nature, but why does Paul always pick on such meaningless vices? Have you been watching the news? People are so messed up. There's killers, there's murderers, there's thieves, there's abusers, there's actually corrupt people doing sick things and disturbing things. And Paul is wanting to pick on my private life? I can do whatever I want to do in the comfort and privacy of my own room. Paul, why does Paul have to pick, pick on, on some of these things? These, these are simply a matter of personal preference. It doesn't hurt you. It doesn't hurt anyone. Paul doesn't even know what I'm doing. He's with the Lord. How does this make a difference in life? What is really, why does it, in other words, why doesn't Paul say, hey, all of you murderers, stop murdering. All of you thieves, stop killing. Why does he pick a normal, relaxed, chill people that just want to have a good time? Is it really wrong to want a little more money? Is it really wrong to want to sleep with this person that I'm deeply in love with? Well, Paul, in his, in his special way, enlightens us. He actually gives us four reasons to know why vices like these are so bad. And the fact is, he, uses, he doesn't actually say vice. I'm using that word for what he would, uh, he would term sin. Here's the first thing. All sin enslaves the person who uses it. If you continue in sin, the Bible describes you as a slave to sin. Look at what he says in uh, verse 5. For know and recognize this. And then he takes all of those things that he used as an example and he, he lumps them together. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, listen to this, who is an idolater. Now that's, that's interesting. Because what Paul is not saying is he's not demonizing those specific things. Nowhere does Paul ever say sexuality is bad. All one would have to do is read like the Song of Songs to see God's design and heart for sexuality. And it's good. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that money is bad. We've all heard that term, sometimes a distorted paraphrase of that verse. 
money is the root of all evil. It actually says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money isn't evil. The Proverbs say that God is the one who gives you the ability to create wealth. So those particular things are not bad things. In fact, they're good. The problem is when humanity takes good things and elevates them to God things. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Sometimes we think of idols as the way that the Israelites would have thought about it thousands of years ago. Uh, It's a statue that I have carved out of a piece of wood. And we look at our lives and we're like, I don't have any statues or uh, engraven images on my mantle. I guess I'm perfect. But idolatry, according to the testimony of Scripture, is when people take good things and elevate them to ultimate things. And idolatry is at the heart of all of our sin. Every time we break the law of God, it's usually connected in some way to idolatry. Idolatry attracts us with fake promises. You'll feel better if you do this now. You'll be satisfied if you go ahead with that. You'll be fulfilled if you do this. You are longing for that which you don't have because if you have that which you do not have, you will be finally happy. And then you get it and you're not happy. But if you have this other thing and the cycle continues, idolatry attracts us with fake promises. It ends up destroying us, however, by causing us to turn our faces away from God. That's what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 1 when he said idolatry the problem with humanity isn't our behaviors per se it's our heart condition it is the fact that we want to turn creation we want to worship creation rather than worshiping the creator idolatry one writer wgt shed once uh, uh, put it this way sin is the suicidal action of the human will against itself so when we sin we We turn our faces away from God's glory. We also end up killing ourselves slowly. Number two, why are these vices so bad? Well, vices exclude you from the kingdom of God. Look at the next part of the verse. In verse five, for no one recognizes this. Every sexual immoral or impure greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of the Messiah and of God. We have to recognize that there are two kingdoms at war. One of them is the indisputed champion. It's God's kingdom. It's expanding. He's already won. He's triumphed over the kingdom of darkness. It's not even a competition. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, John said. He's triumphed over all of those principalities. It's not a battle like that where we're, we're waiting to see who is won. God has been, is victorious on the cross. It is rather a war of two kingdoms inside of each of us. So for the non-believer, the non-believer is purely at allegiance to the kingdom of darkness according to Ephesians chapter 2. 
And that kingdom of darkness is marked, as we're seeing in these, in these verses, all the way through verse 8, is to imitate, to imitate darkness is to imitate lustful self-indulgence. Whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's greed, whether it's disobeying parents, whether it's a bad attitude, whatever you want it to, whatever you want to uh, fill in that blank with, it is this lustful, self-centered self-indulgence. The kingdom of God is marked by imitating God. What did we see in verses 1 through 2? Loving self-denial. So what you have are two different worlds clashing together in a person. The desire of God to lovingly self-deny self. And the call of the world to lustfully self-indulge. And in a person that does not know God, it is There's no competition whatsoever. You are led by your lustful self-indulgences. And in the heart of the believer, those things are radically fighting for your attention. Number three, why are vices so bad? Well, in verse six, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. In our discussion of God being a loving God and a compassionate God, we ought not to forget that God is also holy. And it's very uncomfortable for us to speak of a God who displays wrath, but we have no discomfort speaking of an earthly judge doing the same. In fact, we are tremendously disturbed when an official or a judge, or anyone in that position fails to enact justice. When someone lets an evildoer get off the hook, when justice is not served, when there is evil being undealt with. And so how much more would we expect a God who is perfectly holy to deal with evil? The Bible says that wrath is that outworking of his holiness towards evil. The problem is, we love justice when it doesn't have to do with our evil. We want mercy when we're involved. Fourthly, vices expose the true condition of our heart. Because at this point, I don't know about you, but with me, I see stuff like this and my immediate tendency is to say, okay, I, 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 I gotta be sexually pure, I've got to be more generous, I gotta stop this list of stuff and then I will enter God's kingdom. Wrong. When God's law tells us to do something and we fail to do it perfectly, God is making a statement. Paul said this, I believe, in Galatians and in Romans, that the point of the law is to not just point out our actions, but the fact that our hearts are that which are greedy and selfish and idolatrous. Paul said, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't even know what coveting is. So we can't just save ourselves by acting better than we were. Jesus once said to the Pharisees in the Gospels, actually he said to the Israelites about the Pharisees, he said, if your righteousness does not supersede, if it does not surpass the righteousness you see in these Pharisees and scribes, you're doomed. 
Jesus wasn't saying, okay, you've got to be really good because they're really good. So you've got to be ultra awesome. You've got to be ultra holy. He wasn't saying that at all. He was exaggerating. He was using hyperbole to say, you cannot be as holy as you ought to be. No one in the entire world at that point was as physically and visibly holy as the Pharisees. You say you give a a tenth of your tithe to honor God and worship, the Pharisees would take out their spice racks, man. They would take out their basil and their their cumin and their thyme and they would would portion off a tenth of everything that they had. They went overboard in visible displays of righteousness. Jesus wasn't saying, you need, to, you need to give more from your spice rack to enter into the kingdom of God. He's saying, hey, these people are doing more than anyone on the face of the planet, and they still don't get in. Because the problem is not with individual acts and behaviors. Those things simply point to the problem, which is a sick and evil heart, the condition of all of humanity. He would turn to the Pharisees and say in Matthew 12, 34, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. The problem is not behavioral therapy. If it were that easy, I could just send you all to the local bookstore to look at the self-help section. The problem is not behavioral therapy. The problem is that our hearts are evil and our actions will never be good enough to change our own hearts. That's why we need a great promise. We see that promise in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19 through 20. If the problem is an evil heart, the prophet would say, Speaking from God, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their old furniture. I will remove, that's not what he says, but close. (laughs) I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so they may follow my statutes. I will make them desire me. He goes on. They will keep my ordinances and practice them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. God steps in on the scene and says, you are so wicked that you can't, you don't even know that you're, you're in the filth of your own sin. I'm going to step in and change everything through Jesus Christ, my son. Sends his son to die on the cross for our sins, not just to wash away our sins, but remember what he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Paul would say to the Corinthians that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for the sinful so that we might carry the righteousness of Jesus Christ on his behalf. So he switches what we deserve with what he deserves. So not only are we forgiven, and spiritually debt-free, but we are now forgiven and wealthy with the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. You know what that does to you? Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. The law seeks to expose not just our behaviors, but our need for a new heart. The gospel is that God gives people new hearts. The gospel is that he comes to use an analogy. He comes up to the spiritually homeless and he provides them the title deed to their new house. And he says, live here with me. The gospel is that in addition to that title deed, that new house, that new heart, he provides all the resources that you need. He provides the new furniture. He provides the new interior. He provides the new desires. He provides the new uh, wants in life. He provides the new way of thinking, the new worldview. He provides joy and peace and patience and kindness and love. And he asks for you to step into your new house and begin joyfully rearranging the furniture according to his layout plan. What's the layout plan? Paul said in Romans 6 verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign. I want the profundity of that statement to sink into your hearts this morning. There was at one point, which we saw like a year ago in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our sins. Paul would say elsewhere that we are enslaved to our sins. And now by virtue of the power of Jesus Christ, we are, being able, we are told by Christ, you don't even have to let it reign over you anymore. I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. For some of you, that's not the struggle. For some of you, it's how you relate to your spouse. For some of you, it's how you relate to your coworkers. For some of you, it's just pure selfishness. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's an anger problem. Maybe you have struggled with anger your entire life. You throw tantrums and you can't control it. Maybe you're an alcoholic. Switching over into the kingdom of God is not a matter of an intellectual ascent where one day you sign the back of a bulletin at church and you jump over onto the other side. It is a supernatural endeavor where the Spirit of God says, I will break the power of sin over your life. And it's still present, right? We still mess up, we still sin, but it has lost its power. Do you realize that today? Amen. But it doesn't put us in a vacuum. It's, it's not like God is saying, okay, live in your, your house, to further the analogy. Live in your house. Don't let sin reign. Try not to break anything in your new house. Just sit there and don't bother anyone. No, he doesn't put us in a vacuum. He changes our masters. He brings us from a bad master to a good master. Look at what he says. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God now that you can and all of the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. Who doesn't want that? Who upon being given a brand new house, a fixer-upper, 
doesn't want to start fixing it up. Well, I'll tell you. People who love to live in their own filth. Long time ago, I, I had some relatives who <clears throat> I would visit back from where I used to live who owned this house. And in their house, they owned like six or seven dogs. Cute dogs. They didn't, they didn't really bathe the dogs. And so the dogs ran around just soiling everything, shedding, dirty. In addition to that, I, these particular relatives smoked inside like 30 years. So when I first went over to their house, it was like I walked into a cement wall. I couldn't even breathe. I walked out from just California air, ocean air, into this house, and I, I, I think I was with my dad and my sister. We were just like, Ugh! like I had to back out. It was like I walked into a wall and it threw me back. It was so putrid. It was so disgusting. I couldn't even, I couldn't even breathe. And you know what blew my mind? Is that these, these people had lived there for so long, they couldn't even tell the difference. And I wouldn't go so far as to say that they loved the filth that they were living in, Maybe, perhaps not, not that extreme, but they couldn't tell the difference. They had become so used to it that they were desensitized to the conditions that they were in. When you're desensitized to your sin, you don't want anything else. You're used to it, and at the worst of it, you love it so much you don't want to leave what you have known your entire life. So yes, there is a possibility that you, having been given a new heart and a new house, so to speak, are so in love with the things of your old life that you don't want to leave that. But Paul says that is impossible for the Christian. That's why he commands us, get rid of the old furniture. Now, I'm not talking about just messing up, right? I want everyone to understand that. Who in here doesn't mess up? I'm not talking about falling to temptation or even these things that, that Paul says, how many people in our church today have, have messed up sexually and have been forgiven by God, who have repented of those things, and we are covered by grace? We can mess up and repent, and God's grace picks up the slack, man. I'm not talking about making mistakes. All of us do this. I'm talking about that person who loves to remain in their sin. For you, you are an anomaly to the New Testament. Because if you are still living in sin, habitual, ongoing sin, to the point where you're saying, I, I see no reason to leave this or, 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 or get away from this or walk in holiness, I, I kind of like it, I'm used to it, I even love it. If that's you, you don't need to try harder to get out of that. You need to be saved by Jesus Christ. And may I, if I may be so bold, in a church this size, 
I am terrified that there are some of you that come to reality on a weekly basis thinking that you are a Christian because of your attendance, because of your particular confession, because of a water baptism, because of your Christian vernacular, whatever, when there is actually no supernatural evidence in your life that you've been saved by God. There's no power over sin in your life. There's no change in affections. There's no love and desire for God's righteousness, for his holiness. There's none of that. The only change that you experience is one of geography, where every Sunday you haul yourself out of bed and you plant yourself in a seat in church on a Sunday to listen to some person sing about heavenly sights in the Bible so transcendently holy that your heart being enslaved to sin and blinded by self-righteousness and unaided by grace can only interpret and construe as moralism. And so Sunday after Sunday after some of it, Sunday, there's some of you that leave with a smile on your face because you think you're okay and you are just as enslaved as ever. I'm terrified for you. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you guys, gals, to understand I'm not trying to be that fire brimstone freak. Reading the New Testament and the words of Jesus Christ should cause us to be burdened for people that love their sin. Jesus is saying from his own mouth, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, this is tragic. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Drive out demons in your name? Do many miracles in your name? Didn't we pray in your name? Didn't we do stuff in your name? Didn't we get stuff done in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I wouldn't be loving if I I kept some of the stuff in Ephesians from you. I would hate you if I did that. The fact is, the loving truth of the word of God is, if there is no supernatural evidence of salvation in your life, the Bible offers you no comfort in the next. And my hope this morning is not just to throw that stuff at you. My hope this morning is that the jackhammer of the law of God in all of its holiness will break apart that stony heart of self-righteousness so that the salve of the gospel will wash you clean. If that's you, no longer deceive yourself. Repent and believe. John would say in John chapter 1, verse 12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of the living God. And listen, to God's children, 
the Bible offers a world of comfort. You can know, leaving these doors without a shadow of a doubt, that you are saved by grace. It's easy. You don't have to wake up in the morning always asking yourself, am I saved? Am I saved? I know I was saved yesterday, but am I saved today? Did I lose, it? Did I lose an aspect of it? Can I lose myself? No. Once God saves you, you're done. And you can know it without second-guessing it. Number one, Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 that there is an inward, this is how you can know, there is an inward testimony of the Holy Spirit inside you screaming about it. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, the spirit of adoption, crying out and enabling you to cry out, God is my Father. And he bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. He doesn't just give you a testimony that you belong to God. He is the first one to help you recognize indwelling sin. And that all of us in this room sin and battle two kingdoms against one another. And the Holy Spirit is the one that graciously gives us an insight into that by showing us what the will of God is and the law of God is. That's why Paul in Romans 7 was just throwing a holy fit. Just saying, I, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Ah! There's this thing going on inside me. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That leads to the second thing that brings the Christian comfort. Thanks be to God. Paul says that in our text. Instead of all of these things, instead of coarse, foolish talking, or crude joking, rather give thanks. You know why giving thanks is that antithesis to all of those other vices? Because giving thanks requires of you a posture in which you are able to say of God, there is really nothing I can do to pull myself out of this. My trust is in Jesus Christ alone. So the evidence of salvation in our life is that inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, but it's also sheer trust in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It is that moment where you say, I can do nothing. Only Christ can save me from this. The psalmist would say in Psalm 50, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Speaking of God, to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. And lastly, third evidence of the Christian life is that you fight. Christians are fighters. I don't mean physically. When Paul says sexual immorality and any impurity or greed, coarse, foolish talking, or crude joking, and understand everything along that spectrum, he's saying the Christian fights against his old nature. The Christian does not let his old nature rule him or her. And it's not a nervous fight as if you're going to lose. You have every resource in heaven backing you up. It is a joyful, glad fight. James would say, if friendship with the world is enmity with God, think about that for a moment. Turn that on its head. That would also mean that friendship with God, speaking of the Christian, is now enmity with the world. 
Or to put it another way, we can either side with our sin against Christ or side with Christ against sin. And if you're a Christian saved by grace, you are of a posture which sides with Christ against anything contrary to the will of God. That is your life until he comes and completes that work. And as you do that, you begin to experience the salvation that was brought to you by Jesus Christ. We know we're Christians because of the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, because we have faith in Christ's work alone, and because there is a tangible change in our life. To the believer, this is a joyful fight, because we know that in it, we are being sanctified, we are being made more like Christ, and in the process, all of that stuff that was hindering us from a panoramic view of the glory of God is now being torn away. That sin that's been deeply entangling us, it's being torn away by the power of God as we fight the good fight of faith. To the non-believer, it means you've got to rest and believe in the finished work of Christ that the Holy Spirit might change your heart and you'll know he does because your desires will change. Out of nowhere, there will be a thirst for holiness and righteousness. You won't be perfect. I'm not. You ain't. None of us are. But deeper than the behaviors, deeper deeper than behavioral therapy, the heart will be changed. And that is a supernatural work of God. Is your heart changed this morning? If it is, I pray that God would restore to you the joy of his salvation, that you might recognize what you have been saved from and what you have been saved to, an inheritance in the kingdom of God to enjoy God forever. May these things be done according to God's will. Heavenly Father, so easy right now for us to perhaps go into self-righteous work mode because doubtless there is not a person in this room who doesn't struggle with something. I just want to pray, Lord, that your gracious hand would protect us from diverting and defaulting to self-righteous works, trying to save ourselves by being better people, in order to please you, I pray that instead you would cause us to see that by faith you are pleased in us so that we might live for you. That we are not loved because we act a certain way, but we act a certain way because we know that we're loved. Like a child who realizes that they are the prized possession of their father and would do anything to honor their Father. I pray that you would work that in your church today. That our Father loves us unconditionally. Even when we mess up, even Monday morning when we wake up and we just ruin everything, the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. So for the person who is discouraged, who is brought down, who is broken, I pray that you would heal us by the tremendous grace presence of the living God. And for the rest of us, I pray that you would cause us 
to dive deeper into the good fight of faith, knowing that one day we will see you face to face. That we would be able to say right now with Paul, we do not run like one who runs aimlessly. We don't box like one who, who beats the air, but we discipline our bodies. We bring them into strict subjection so that after preaching to others, we ourselves might not be disqualified. We want to finish the race, Lord. Thank you that it's by your great power. In Jesus' name, amen.